Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Open our ears to the Word of God, our hearts. We would love you, Lord. We would be discipled by you. We're not looking for you to just bless us. We are looking for you to lead us and train us and make us like yourself. So may the Word come alive, and may I be given the grace to just get out of the way and let us, let us fall in love with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. We're in John chapter 13. We're going to talk today about escaping betrayal. And we're going to watch really a very uh, unpleasant moment as Jesus is actually betrayed by Judas. And we're going to learn from that because we watch how John has given us the gift. He, we watch how Jesus responded in the moment Judas left the room uh, to uh, betray him. And uh, we learn from that something very important. So I'll start, I want to I read just a couple of verses ahead to kind of remind you. We're in the upper room. This is the last evening that Jesus will be with his disciples. Uh, he is uh, by, so who knows, one or two o'clock in the morning, he's going to be arrested in, in, in Garden of Gethsemane, across the valley. He will have a, a trial in the middle of the night, the whole thing's illegal. Uh, in terms of Jewish law, he'll go before the high priest and, and, and uh, his, his father-in-law. Uh, he will then go to Pilate. And by 9 o'clock in the morning, he's going to be on the cross. These are the last hours he has with his disciples. And, and you remember, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are that evening. Aren't we grateful to John? He took notes. Hallelujah, let that be a lesson to us all. <laughs> He took notes. He remembered what was said. And uh, so he, he reports to us that incredible conversation that took place that evening. So this is where it's taking place. It is a Passover meal. It doesn't say so specifically here in John, but it says so everywhere else, including Paul. Well, there's no question what's happening. It's a Passover meal. They may have started to meet a little bit early in the afternoon so that he could get all of this in. And so this conversation takes place. And during the conversation, I want you to just spot a couple of things he said, just so you get the feel of it. I'm at verse 10 of chapter 13. Jesus has washed their feet, if you recall. He, has he said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. And then he adds this kind of, this kind of uh, warning, this dark note. He says, but not all of you. And then he said, for John adds, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Now let your eye go down to verse 18. There he's been talking about uh, being an ex uh, how we are to live our lives. And he said that we will be happy. We talked about the secret to happiness. We'll be happy if we not only know these things, but do them. And then he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, which was frankly all of them, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then he quotes from Psalm 41, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. 
And, from, and then he goes on, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Let's skip down to verse 21, and then I'll go down to verse uh, 32. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. Would you say troubled in spirit? Yeah, we'll talk about that more, but notice that. He is, he is shaken. He is, he is, something's going on. He's stirred. And testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began to look at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom. The bosom is the, fir- the fold on the front of your robe. That's what. So there was one reclining, so somebody's sitting to his right. The, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. And who is that? It's John, yeah. And I, I do talk in the notes that I'm not going to bring it out today, why he calls himself that uh, way. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, that is to John, tell us of who it is of whom he's speaking. So he's whispering and, and, and gesturing. He leaning back thus on the Lord's bosom, so all he has to do is just lean back, and I'll explain in a minute why, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So he, when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Who entered into him? Yeah, did you notice that? It's the big guy. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one knew, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing that because Judas had the money box, Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Would you say, and it was night? Now, now look, okay, so Judas goes out the door, then look at 31 and 32. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. It's one thing to be wounded by an enemy, but it's quite another to be betrayed by a friend. We expect enemies to hate us, and usually know why they do. There's been an offense or profound disagreement, and we haven't been able to repair it. And it seems that no matter how nice we try to be to people, we all end up with a certain number of enemies. How many of you have somebody who just plain old doesn't like you? Four of us. And how many... How many of you, if truth be told, have somebody you don't really like? It's just kind of a fact of life, you know, no matter how nice you are. I mean, I understand why I might have some, but I'm not sure why I think you, some of you have them. You're nice. And when, when you're nice like that, how can you have people that don't like you? But there are people who don't like you a lot and who would delight to see you fall. It's a strange phenomenon, just part of human society. Those are enemies. We often know or can kind of guess at why that's the case. But betrayal happens very differently. It comes as a shock, a complete surprise, from someone we trusted and thought loved us. 
we discover that this friend to whom we opened up our heart and became vulnerable now hates us and may have hated us for a long time. Isn't that the worst part of it? You find out, wow, you felt like that toward me for so long and I thought you loved me. It really hurts. And by the way, I'm going to be real careful today because this is an extremely painful subject. I am not going to go digging and make you feel horrible. Uh, we're going to talk about how to escape it, not how to get into it. Uh, so I'm not, uh, but I have to, I'm going to talk about some of the dynamics, but I, I, if you're worried, I'm not taking you down to have to relive some things. God willing. Uh, the damage that revelation, that revelation does to our self-esteem is profound. We are injured at a much deeper level. It causes us to question ourselves. If someone who knows us so well has decided we aren't worth loving, we aren't worth protecting, then maybe our own assessment of ourselves is wrong. Maybe they're right. Maybe we aren't worth loving. Maybe we aren't worth protecting. You see where this comes from? This is what betrayal does. It's very different. I know I got enemies and they hate my guts. Okay, whatever. But when someone who I've trusted, who I thought loved me, who knows me so well, has decided you aren't worth loving, you aren't worth protecting, who would abandon me and turn me over, they know me. They've really registered a, uh, their verdict on my worth. And it shakes you. And it leaves you wondering, wow, am I who I thought I was? You know, it goes right into the gut and, and attacks your own self-esteem. Enemies can bruise us, but only people we trust can betray us. And when they do, they injure us in a way that without God's help may never be healed. These are the wounds that can leave lasting depression, that are the hardest to forgive. I can tell you the ones that you have to forgive over and over and over and over and over for years and years and years. It's the betrayals. And that, that leave us afraid to ever trust again. You see, there, there it comes. If I, you know, I, I was totally uh, confident in this person's love and commitment to me, and I was completely deceived. How can I ever trust anyone again? And so one of the horrible things that comes out of this is I decide I don't dare ever open up like that again, which now leaves me isolated, alone, and cold. It's terrible. So the Apostle John has given us a precious gift. He has described in intimate detail the horrible moment when Jesus confronted his betrayer. It's almost impossible to believe that anyone who knew Jesus so well could decide to betray him. Why would you betray someone who is so completely good? Yet Jesus, Jesus did, pardon me, Judas did betray him, which proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that betrayal isn't caused by a flaw in the victim but by a flaw in the heart of the betrayer. Did you follow this? Look, there's reasons people don't like us. There's reasons we can have conflict, but that's different than betrayal. Betrayal, I'm going to read that again. It is so good. Betrayal isn't caused by a flaw in the victim, but by a flaw in the heart of the betrayer. It exposes the character of the disloyal, not the worth of the forsaken. None of us is as good as Jesus, but none of us deserves to be betrayed. 
Yet it seems that sooner or later, all of us are. Which is why we need to study this passage. It shows us betrayal, but more importantly, it shows us how Jesus responded to it. John lets us watch him escape its grip, and that's a lesson we all need to learn so that we can do the same. I want to take you back into that upper room. I want you to watch this, because in watching Jesus, we're going to see how to respond to betrayal. Uh, Sunday. Jesus knew he would be betrayed. That fact had been prophesied by David a thousand years earlier. And he knew who would do it. He knew what Judas would do when he chose him. But that knowledge didn't protect him from the shock of what was happening. Someone who had walked with him for the past two to three years. Someone he had financially supported through the offerings given to his ministry. Let me stop there a second. That's an important point. I don't think we realize, but it's, it comes out in the book in Acts there, chapter 1, I give you the reference, that the 12 who were called had a, a, a portion of the offering that came into Jesus' ministry. So as people gave to that ministry, they would get a portion of that to support their families. Have you ever wondered, how do you leave home and leave your wife and kids for, for two, to, two to three years and you're not there working? I mean, come on, they're going to all starve. Well, they didn't. Uh, what happened is as, as people gave to that ministry, uh, and we even have record of, of people who did in, 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 the, in the Gospels, and they gave to that ministry, a portion would go to each of these uh, 12. And that's why when uh, Judas uh, uh, forsake, struck the Lord and, and died, uh, Peter will then uh, stand up with, in the upper room there with the disciples and say, we need to put someone back in his place. Uh, now, there's lots of apostles, but we need to put somebody back in the 12. There's a spot here that needs to be uh, given to someone so they can go out in full-time ministry. So uh, Judas, in effect, had eaten Jesus' bread. And remember what uh, Psalm 41 said? He who has eaten my bread lifted his heel against me to kick me and destroy me. All right. Someone who had, who had ministered in his name and watched God's power at work was sitting beside him at that Passover meal, waiting for an opportunity to leave the room so he could report his location to the religious authorities. Knowing what Judas was doing didn't remove the sorrow from the fact that he was doing it. It's never easy to be hated by someone we love. And Jesus loved Judas. John says Jesus was shaken, literally stirred in spirit. What does that mean? It may mean a sorrowful look appeared on his face. It may mean tears flowed. He may have trembled as he restrained his emotions. And those emotions were, were likely not only sorrow over the evil that was being done to him, but grief for Judas himself, knowing the horrors which lay ahead of him. If we recall how accurately Jesus described what would happen to Peter before he denied him, then surely he knew that the man sitting beside him would soon kill himself and die in his sin. Did you ever, ever think that through? I mean, if, if, if he can tell Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. He can, I mean, this talk about prophetic capacity. And so he begin, first, he's sitting there at that meal, and he starts to be shaken. He's, he, there's an emotion, there's a stir, he's, he, he, Jesus is, 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 is suffering. Yes, he's being horrifically betrayed by someone he loves. 
But I can't imagine that he doesn't have a, I mean, he must know what's going to happen. Within, within, I don't know what, a day or so, Judas is going to, to regret what he's done, throw the money uh, at the priests who refused to take it, the 30 pieces of, of silver, and then go and apparently hang himself. And it says he will, he will, his, his bowels will split open and he'll be left there on a field of blood. So he's, he's got to be grieving for Judas. This is just a horrible moment. Those feelings swept over Jesus, swept, swept over, as they swept over Jesus, he solemnly announced, that's the word that's used, testified like a witness in a courtroom, one from among you will give me over. There was no one else present. So the disciples knew it must be one of them. But who? Jesus had given no clues during their years together. He had not singled out one of them and treated him disrespectfully or spoken to him in anger. So the disciples looked at one another in confusion, not knowing who he meant. You just, doesn't that speak of Jesus' character? None of them know. Peter's, Peter's sitting across the, the room. What you have, the way it's, the room is seated, it's, uh, it's a triclinium, they call it. It's a three-sided um, low table, about 16, 18 inches high. And by this point in history, the, the way the, the, the Jews took Passover was you'd lay on your, uh, your left side and you ate, you lean, took from the table right here with your right. So the person who's in Jesus' bosom, as it were, or on his right side is John. And the person right beside him to the left, apparently, is Judas. So he's, he's, he's sitting there at this table with Judas right beside him. And Peter looks over at John trying to be sneaky, and you can only imagine how effective that was with Peter. <laughs> he, and it says he bobbed, somehow he bobbed his head. <laughs> you know, everybody's... He, ask him, who is it? There was no point in hiding Judas' identity any longer. But to expose his treachery suddenly to everyone in the room, might have started a fight. Undoubtedly would have. So Jesus chose only to tell John, probably to put his mind at ease, that it wasn't him. But he didn't merely answer his question by telling him it was Judas. Instead, he revealed Judas by reaching out to him one last time. Part of every Passover meal is a small dish of bitter herbs. It's called maror. A piece of unleavened bread is dipped into those herbs and eaten as a reminder of the bitterness of Israel's slavery in Egypt. If you go back to this, I mean, this is, this is not a custom that came along later. You go back to Exodus chapter 12, you'll have the lamb, you'll have the bread, and you'll have the bitter herbs. Those are the three things that are specifically mentioned there. So you, you've got at this table these dishes of, uh, of bitter herbs in front of them. So you've got the bread, you've got the lamb, but you've got these bitter herbs. And there's, they'll be around the table at various places. And what, what do they symbolize? The bitterness of slavery, the bitterness of sin, of being under the bondage of Pharaoh. And so when Peter uh, gestures to John, says, who is it? Ask him who it is. John just has to lean back and say, Master, who is it? 
And Jesus whispers, it's the one to whom I dip the bread. Now, yours, the, my Bible calls it a morsel, which is kind of bleh. And if you think that's bad, King James calls it a sop. What it is, is the bread. And so what he would have done is reach that into the bitter herbs. Today they use horseradish, by the way, but, but whatever. Uh, they dipped it into the bitter herbs, and he will have turned and offered it to Judas. And you can only imagine the look in his eyes. What he's doing is prophetically warning Judas. He's saying, Judas, this leads to bitterness. He's calling to him. He is giving him one last chance. Don't do this. You will be sorry. It will be so bitter. At that moment, as he offers this, Judas reads what's happening, and he flares. And in the anger, he is literally possessed by the devil himself. Now, you need to understand something. The Bible talks about demonic possession a good deal. But there is only other, one other case that I know of where Satan himself inhabited someone. Do you know what that is? The Antichrist. Yeah, the Antichrist will be someone in whom Satan himself becomes incarnated into him, fills him and possesses him. It doesn't say a demon came into Judas. It says Satan himself entered him. Can you imagine the look in Judas' eyes? Can you imagine what the, the change in the room? Oh, wow. We're not going further with this discussion. We're not going further with this, with this Passover meal. This, this horrible presence has just entered the room. Once more, John identifies uh, Judas as... as uh, the son of Simon Iscariot, probably to prevent his readers from confusing him with another, another disciple named Judas, Judas the son of James. It's quite likely that Judas understood the prophetic warning symbolized by those herbs. But instead of repenting, he hardened his heart. He probably flared in anger at Jesus, and that terrible choice opened him up to a form of spiritual possession far worse than demonic possession. John states that as Judas was eating the bread with the herbs herbs on it, Satan himself entered him. One can only imagine the look that came over his face and the evil presence that entered the room. Judas needed to leave immediately. No ministry could continue as long as he was there, so Jesus said to him, what you are doing, do quickly. The, that exchange between Jesus and Judas must have happened rapidly because none of the other disciples realized while Je why Jesus had said this to Judas. They heard him tell Judas to do something quickly and assumed he'd sent him out to purchase supplies or give, him, uh, give, him a, give a gift to the poor because Judas was the one who was responsible for the care of the money. John concludes his description of Judas by saying, Therefore, that one, having taken the piece of bread, went out immediately, and it was night. A trumpet would have sounded in the temple to announce the official beginning of Passover. Three stars can be seen in the darkening sky. Passover begins in the evening. It begins at, at twilight, and someone is going to be on the temple walls watching the sky, and as it darkens, they're watching till they can count distinctly three stars. When three stars are apparent, the trumpet will blow, it goes over the whole city, and everyone knows Passover has begun. And... Uh, as I say, I believe they started this meal early in the, earlier in the afternoon. And that may be what John is telling us, by, and it was night. But he also must have meant that, that those words to point to the spiritual night 
in which Judas had entered, as well as the hour of suffering, which began for Jesus as Judas left the room. It's the very first words that Jesus, Jesus spoke after Judas left the room that show us how to escape the wounds a betrayer leaves behind. Listen, and would you read this? Now, this is my translation. It's a little bit different, so re let's read this out loud. Therefore, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man was glorified, and God was glorified in him. Did you notice what changed? The it's gone to the past tense. Your, your Bible probably reads, now is the Son of Man glorified, now is the Father glorified in him. It does not say that in the Greek. It distinctly says a past tense. But the translators are going, well, it's now, isn't it? So it's got to be past tense. It's got to be present tense. So they kind of fix it for us to try to make sense out of it. But it says what I just translated. It, it does. It now was. And what I think is happening is, is no sooner does this horrible exchange, and I, I, I can't describe how awful it must have been to, ha to watch Judas in front of your eyes possessed by the devil. The look in his face, the horror of it, almost the stench of it, would have been appalling. He says, what you do, do quickly. Get out. Get out. Judas has now got to leave. That's a horrible thing to have happened. In that moment, no sooner does he leave the room and Jesus says this. And I believe what he's saying. He says, now the Son of Man was glorified and the Father was glorified. And he's taking him back to prophecy. He's taking him back to the Word. He's saying... He hates me. He has rejected me and betrayed me. But let me tell you what the word of God says. Let me tell you what God says. He is glorified in me. And he, I will glorify him. That's the truth. What just happened is a lie. Immediately, he reminded his disciples and himself of what the scriptures said about him. Of the destiny God had for him. Yes, the scriptures prophesied he would be betrayed, but they also said he'd be glorified, and by his obedience, he would wonderfully glorify his father. Jesus had disappointed Judas. He had not met his expectations. This is the way I put it together on Judas. Judas thought he would use his miraculous, Jesus would use his miraculous powers to set up an earthly kingdom. And he expected to be given some position of authority in that kingdom. He's not the only one. In fact, it may be almost all of them feel that way. Uh, dear Thomas seems to have got it straight. He says, well, let's just go and die with him. <laughs> you know, he, he looks better and better, doesn't he, as time goes on. If you recall, not long before this, uh, John, who wrote the very gospel, and his brother James, with their mother, who is, I'm almost certain, Salome, Mary's uh, sister, came to him, and, and, and he says to, to Salome, his aunt, this is Jesus' aunt, what do you want? And she says, uh, I, I ask that these sons of mine uh, sit to your right and your left when you come into your kingdom. I mean, they're still figuring. You got the goods, man. You got the power. You're going to set up your earthly king. It's coming soon. I mean, you're talking about all this negative stuff, but you're going to bring it. You know? And when you do, I want them to be the prime minister. You know? And the, and the defense minister, right? You give them high position, okay? You know, and Jesus' response was, you don't have any idea what you're asking. Can, can you drink the cup that I uh, have to drink? And they go, oh, yeah, we can do it. He says, you will. Ooh, you will. <laughs> James will be the first to die. James is the first to die. 
you'll drink it. But he said, who sits at my right and left isn't for me to give. That's for the Father. So th- there, there's this ambition in it. And what is Je- with all of this expectancy, all the time, Jesus keeps saying, no, I'm going to die. No, I'm going to die violently. No, I'm going to die. And they're going, no, you're not going to die. I'm going to die. Well, Judas has turned bitter. These others have just turned resolved. Jesus had not taken that path. He was determined to die, and at some point, Judas' attitude toward him moved from admiration to resentment, maybe even disgust. That last glance from Judas after Satan entered him must have been filled with a breathtaking hatred. And the humanity of Jesus could not have been unaffected. It must have hurt terribly to have someone so close hate him so much. Yet he did not allow Judas' verdict against him to linger, even for a moment. No sooner had Judas left the room than Jesus announced the truth in the face of that lie. You following where this is going? Rejecting the lie. Basically, Jesus said, if the scriptures say that God will glorify, bring honor to himself through this betrayal, then what my betrayer says about me is a lie and God will prove it. I choose to believe what God says about me, not what he says. Why don't you say that last phrase with me? I choose to believe what God says about me, not what he says. By the way, by the way that he responded, Jesus shows us that we have a choice. Either we can believe the hateful things our betrayer says and plunge into the misery of shame, or we can listen to God and believe what he says about us. Let me stop there. For some reason, people who are going to betray you, people who are going to abandon you, feel a, a, almost a compulsion. I, I, it's, like an or, it's like some kind of organic need to blame you. No one will come along and say, you know, I am just fickle. I can't seem to keep a commitment. You know, I can't seem to, don't trust someone like me, man. You know, I'm out here, out of here. Uh, Very seldom is that the case. They always have to say, I'm leaving because you don't deserve me. I have put up with you for all this time. I have been miserable and I'm out of here. I'm going for freedom. God's going to set me free, you know. And they, so it's always, you're always left with this, this bath of just sludge thrown all over you. You don't deserve me. You don't deserve my love. You don't deserve my protection. You don't deserve my, my, my care of you and provision for you. I'm leaving you. But I, I'm the victim here. I'm really the one who suffered. I need to be set free. <laughs> Is this ring of any bells? It's always that way. It, by the way, it's often that way when they leave the church, too. They got to come and tell me why I failed them. And I'm sort of thinking, you know, why don't you just say goodbye? <laughs> just, just go ahead. God be with you. You know, do you have to splash acid on me before you leave? It's just something about that need to justify ourselves in the process. The, um, the betrayer can uh, plunge in. Uh, thank you. The emotional damage a betrayer leaves is so deep, no amount of positive self-talk can heal it. We may try to ignore the judgments leveled against us, but it's like trying to ignore a disease. Betrayal has the power to outlast our resolve. 
In time, we grow weary of the struggle and give in. But when we turn our attention to what God has said about us, there is a power behind that truth that is far greater than, the po than positive self-talk. The one who made us, the one who knows us better than we know ourselves, who approves of us and has great plans in store for us. He promises to uphold us, to vindicate us, and reveal his glory through us. Listen, would you go with me to Psalm 41? I want to show you the psalm that Jesus quoted earlier. Because it doesn't stop at where he quoted. It goes on. I'll start at verse 5. David wrote this, and I think it's a very deep personal reflection. He pictures himself, first of all, lying on a sickbed. I don't know if he was ill or something. And then he says at verse 5, My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? That's what they say. They're waiting for me to die. And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. So he says this enemy comes and pretends to be my friend. Pretends to come to my bedside and want to care for me. When he, his heart gathers wickedness to himself. He evaluates my health. And when he goes outside, he tells it. Tells it. So in other words, he goes out and he reports to everybody how sick I am. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt, saying, a wicked thing is poured out on him. And when he lies down, he will not rise up again. They're all hoping I'll die. They pretend to be nice, but they are hoping I'll die. Verse 9, and here's the verse Jesus quoted. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, sat at my table. Boy, in that, in that culture, when you come into someone's home and you eat their bread and they feed you, there is a trust thing, and it's still to this day uh, a strong issue in the Middle East. Uh, who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He's betrayed me. But now watch David. David does the same thing Jesus does. Watch, watch him. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. Now, David is not one to forgive uh, an offense. <laughs> he just soon smashed their teeth and stuff. Anyway, by this I know that you are pleased with me, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. God, you know I love you. You know I trust you. You know I walk with you in my heart. Therefore, you set me in your presence forever. They want me to die. I ask you to vindicate me, my God, and set me in your presence forever. That's my destiny. Not, not what they wish, but that's the destiny for me. You see it? One more uh, look at Isaiah 54, 17. This, this is so good. You need to memorize it if you haven't memorized it. I'm serious. This is just one of those verses that's a, a treasure. It's Isaiah chapter 54 is about saved people. Isaiah 53 is described the salvation of Jesus Christ. And then Isaiah 54 opens up and says, Oh, barren one, you who have borne no children, <laughs> put out those tent pegs because you're going to have kids. And he's, it's talking about the redeemed believer now, who is now going to be fruitful and, and reach many others. And then here are the promises that, to these redeemed believers, and it says this one is one of them, and it's for you. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the inheritance. That's what heritage means. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication, that means to be announced righteous and shown to be innocent. Their vindication is from me, 
declares the Lord. Why don't you read that? Whatever version you have, read it out loud with me. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. I, uh, I put that to music many, many years ago. It's even, my song's even older than the song we sang today. And um, I had a friend, this was when we were in Arizona, in, in our church, a man who had come, come to our church. He was an extremely successful businessman. I won't go into the details of it, but I mean, he's, he's in the big leagues. And um, he would hand out bulletins <laughs> with his wife at the door. You know, humble man, gracious man. Well, he, had, he was so successful that he actually had some of the uh, oh, Nats, I, I explained the, the state, but some government officials who, who decided to use government power to try to take his business from him. And uh, they began to charge him with whatever they could make up. And it, I, one day I opened the paper, and here was a thing with his picture in it, and saying that he was up for all of these things and that they and, and it had the potential of 100 years in prison. I, I mean, I'm, that's what it said. And I thought, whoa. Um, man, and uh, he, he would come by the church, you know, the, the, he, he was really oppressed because he, he, he had been righteous. He had not, this was, this was nothing more than just an attack. Uh, people who he had trusted had, had turned on him. And he would, I, I thought he was going to have a heart attack. I mean, the pressure was enormous. And he'd come into the church when no one was there and just sit in the, one of the pews and lean his head on the chair in front of him and just die. And I'd come by if I was around, and I'd just put my hand on him. And just, just pray, come on. You know, God, just lift him up, lift him up. And one of the moments when I was praying for him, I got Isaiah 54, 17. And I said, this is what the Lord says to you. No weapon formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that rises in judgment against you, you will condemn. This is your heritage as a servant of the Lord, and his, your vindication is from him, saith God. And I put it to music so he could sing it. And, I, and he did. <laughs> and he hung on to that. Well, I, I, I won't go through any, uh, any details, only to say, as time went on, God vindicated that man. And not only many of those people who were doing what they were doing lost their jobs, some of them ended up working for him. <laughs> Come full circle, huh? You know? And me, I point out how kind he was. He even hired some of them. Like, really? He, he, turned, he talked about turning the other cheek to your enemy. Yeah. And the Lord completely vindicated him. But boy, was it a ride. And it wasn't overnight. It was years in the process. You understand? But God is our vindicator. God is our vindicator. The, Isaiah knows it. David knows it. And you're watching Jesus engage this betrayal and turn to the word and say, but this is what God says about me. And you and I have to do the same. This is how you survive. This is how you prosper actually through uh, betrayal. Otherwise, it'll eat you alive. Three more dangers. As we've just seen, the greatest danger that comes with betrayal is that we believe a lie about our own worth. We believe that we are who the betrayer says we are, not who God says we are. And we saw how Jesus dealt with that lie. 
No sooner had Judas left the room than he declared what the Bible said about him. But there are at least three more dangers which betrayal brings with it. Here's a list. Number one. The first danger is that we become bitter and respond with hatred toward the one who hated us. In doing so, we take on the same spirit as the person who betrayed us. Even though we're a victim, that's that bitter hatefulness sours us as much as it did them. It damages you or me as badly as it does them. It turns us into them. Because they condemned us, we condemn them. And that judgmental attitude sours our relationship with everyone else. You can't compartmentalize. When you're that angry, that bitter, you spill that acid all over everybody. It affects your every relationship gets soured because you've just got a belly full of this anger. And it dries up our walk with God. How do I know? I've been there. <laughs> That's how I know. And I'll tell you the thing that the Lord's taught me. And, and, and again, there are enemies, but then there's the betrayals or perceived betrayals. And what, what, what I've learned to do, the Bible says, I am to bless those who persecute me. Am I? And pray for them. So there are certain people who are being blessed. I'm serious. And with all my heart, I'm blessing them and praying for them almost every day. Why? I cannot let that arrow enter my soul. It'll ruin everything. Do you hear it? You can't do it either. You have got to fight that stuff. It's got to come out. It has got to come out. It kills you. Get that out. How do you do it? You actually let what, that, that, that turn for good. And now you bless them. <laughs> you say, what? Do it. Just bless them. Pray. That's what he says. Do it. Do it. Number two. The second danger is that betrayal plants a doubt about our future. We feel ruined, destroyed, cast aside as though that person had the power to take away from us the calling God had placed on our life. If we believe that, it can become our reality. We can spend the rest of our days looking backward at what someone took from us rather than looking forward to what God has planned for us. The assumption, the lie comes into your brains, you are ruined goods. That person, and sometimes they've really done something to us. I mean, we, our life is altered. And you think, well, there went plan A. All I have to look forward to at best is plan B. I'm just going to have to limp along, you know, till I get to the, to the end of the race and pull over to the side and, you know, and, and that's, that'll be the end of it. That's not true. Here's what God does. He gives you plan A by a different way. Now that preaches, huh? <laughs> Say that with me. Plan A by a different way. Let me give you an example of this. One of the people who listens to our podcast is a prisoner in a, in a state penitentiary in another part of the country. And uh, this guy really did something really, really bad. I mean, it was famous, actually. And, and uh, so he'll never come out. And in the course of it, he has come to Christ very real, very deep, very profound. And he's got a call as a pastor on him. Now, that state penitentiary, for some reason, doesn't have the funds, particularly for a chaplain, apparently, uh, or a regular one. And so he is, in effect, the chaplain for the state penitentiary. He studies all the time theology and Bible things, he's, and he's pastoring and ministering. And he will never come out, but he will, for the rest of his life, be who God made him to be. 
his congregation happens to be in a penitentiary. Had this not happened, it could have been without the penitentiary. But who he is, plan A, is simply being done by a different way. Did you follow? The affairs of your life, the, the where and hows can be changed. But who you are, who you were formed to be, the good works you've been predestined to walk in by him who crafted you in your mother's womb, never changes. You have to remember that. You are not plan B. You're just picking up plan A by a different way. Number three, the third danger is that we don't recognize the spiritual source behind the betrayer. We forget that the devil has a role in that attack and that his goal is more than to merely injure us. He is trying to prevent us from passing our faith on to others. His attack is ultimately against our spiritual descendants and our future generations. We may not see them, but the devil does and knows that they he is attacking them by attacking us. In that sense, betrayal is not only about us. It's about those who depend on us to shake off the lies and despair and rise up to fight for them. You are a fountainhead. If a hundred years passes and the Lord doesn't come back, you, if you can, have you ever seen these studies where they take one person and then they follow through how many children or how many they had a, they, they had a teaching and how it spread? It's stunning. It's just amazing. You bring somebody to the Lord, and they bring somebody and somebody to the Lord, and they bring somebody and somebody to the Lord, and there's just this tree that just comes spilling out. The devil sees that. He didn't just going after you. He's going after your posterity. He's going after the influence, the, 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 the Christ that you're going to pass over to others. He's, going, he's trying to stop that, not just you. I'll show you in a minute somebody who spotted that. Here we go. Joseph. I'll just tell you what that, what's happening. This is in chapter 50. Uh, it was worth reading later on. One of the best examples in the Bible of someone escaping from the grip of betrayal is Joseph. Though his brothers murderously betrayed him he was, when he was young, years later he was able to explain to them why he would not seek revenge. He gave them three reasons which are as freeing today as they were then. Just briefly, you remember the circumstances? He's a young man, and his father has, you often hear it, given him a coat of many colors, is what they often translate. But what it actually was is a coat with, it was, it was the coat worn by the oldest son. If you, if you remember, Joseph is actually number 11, I think, in the family. He's got 10 brothers older than him, and Jacob, his father, gives to him, this kid, the coat of the oldest son of the family. Why did he do that? Just in brief, I'll tell you, I think, why. This was the first child by Rachel. And it wasn't just that he loved Rachel the most, and he did. But Rachel was the woman he tried to marry in the first place. He got stuck with Leah, if you recall. The father-in-law switched him. Yeah, so he's got 10 kids by Leah, but this is his wife in his mind, his real wife, their first child. So Joseph is his firstborn. I can see why he did it. It's terrible parenting. I mean, it is just stupid beyond belief. And Joseph, Jacob's capable of that kind of stupid. Uh, 
And this is just phenomenal uh, idiocy in, as a father. But I can see why he did it. But he did it. And boy, did the older brothers take well to that. They just wanted to kill that kid. They just, their father, talk about betrayal from them. Their father just, just dumped him. And, and so they want to kill this kid. And at one point, you recall, they put Joseph in a pit. And they really were. This is not a bluff. They're not scaring the kid. They're going to kill him. And they're going to leave him there to starve. And Reuben, the oldest, he has the good sense to say, well, let's sell him to the slave traders that are going by, trying to at least save his life. You know, let's not have the blood on our head. Uh, so let's sell him. When, when Jacob died, when their father died, you remember, now we're all down in Egypt. Remember this? Jo Joseph is the governor of Egypt. Oh, boy. When the father died, the brothers go, we're toast. Now that dad's dead, he's going to kill us all. You know, we, he's going he's to get his revenge now. Here we come. Here we come. So they came to him, and they, they tried to bargain with him. He said, he said, first of all, they lied. And they said, before he died, dad said, don't kill us. <laughs> and now, you need to know that Jacob became, in his old age, a great prophet and a great old man. He, he was a wonderful man in his old age. He went through a tremendous amount of pain to get there. But he was no conniver anymore. He was Israel. He became Israel. He went from Jacob, the, the, the schemer, to Israel, the prince of God, and, and in his old age. And, and he and Joseph were dear friends. So Joseph knows what his dad thinks. And so he begins to weep when his brothers come. He realizes, they don't, you don't trust me a bit. You think I'm going to kill you, don't you? And then, then they said to him, look, we just put you in slavery, right? So just don't kill us, enslave us. We'll become your servants, okay? And then he says this to them. Because he has no bitterness in him. The man's got that out of his heart. He's free. How did he do it? First of all, he says, number one, read this out loud with me, the quote. Do not be afraid, for I, am I in God's place? Joseph refused to sit in God's judgment seat. Don't be afraid. Am I in God's place? I'm not the judge. He refused to condemn his brothers for their deeds. He was able to do that because he trusted that God would be the final judge. And that he would apply to his brothers mercy and justice where it was due. So he didn't have to pursue his own justice. He was free to forgive his betrayers. Do you understand that? Listen, brothers and sisters, you may have been badly betrayed. But God is on his throne. And if that person repents, then hallelujah, they'll be given mercy. And if they don't, they'll be given a justice that will, you don't even want to mess with. You don't need to apply justice. It will be applied. And if it's, and the person deserves mercy, they're going to get it. You and I can step out of the judgment role. We don't have to try them. We don't have to seek justice. He'll do it. Number two, read this with me. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph saw that God had not allowed his brothers to stop the plan God had for their life, his life. He had used their betrayal to serve his greater purposes. Joseph had watched God's power overrule human betrayal. You often think to yourself, I'm ruined. They've taken my destiny from me. No one can take your destiny from you. God is the insurer of your destiny. No one can take from you what God has planned for you. All they were able to do is get him down to Egypt quicker. He would have gotten there one way or another. They just got him there quicker.
So when God's with you, he will even take the terrible assault and use it to strengthen you, develop you, put you where you belong, teach you deep lessons. He will use it for your good. What does he say? He causes all things to work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. He will use that in our lives, every bit as, with, as Joseph. Number three, so therefore, do not be afraid. I will, and, and, the, and this is the literal, I will nourish you. I will feed you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke to their hearts. That's what Joseph did with those brothers. Joseph looked past his brother's jealousy and recognized Satan's plan to destroy his entire family. The spiritual attack wasn't primarily against him. It was against the 12 sons of Jacob, against the future nation of Israel, and ultimately against the Savior who would be born to that family. Who is he talking to? Simeon, Levi, <laughs> Issachar, Naphtali, Zebulun. He's talking to the tribes of Israel. If he kills them, the entire nation of Israel has just been wiped out. The entire promise and plan of God, the family that he's establishing, is now dead or ruined. He sees that. Joseph gets it. Look what he just did. They were going to starve him to death in a pit, right? So what does he say he will do for them? I will feed you. That's spiritual warfare, people. That's doing the opposite. It's going right in the face of what the devil would do and doing the exact opposite he says, you would starve me to death, I will feed you and protect you. You would abandon me, I will cover you. And what he means is, I'm going to take out of my own estate and give you an allotment. I will provide for each of your families. I will fund you. Don't think he didn't know what he was doing. The next thing out of his mouth that he says to them is, and when after I die, when, when, when you go back to the land and you inherit the promise, you take my bones with you. He totally gets it. He knows what he's doing. He's, you, people, God, the devil is after not just you. He's after the anointing on your family. He's after the people and the, 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 the ministries that, he, that God wants to do through you. He is attacking those things. He sees it. He gets it. And if we respond in kind, if we allow that thing to stick and ruin us, He's won. We fight the way he fought. We see our true enemy. And we do spiritual warfare. Literally the opposite of what was done to us is the way we respond. Escaping our betrayal. If you take God out of the equation, nothing we said today makes sense. If he's not there to overrule the betrayal, if he can't take what was done to us and use it for good, if he doesn't see us as someone in whom he will glorify himself in spite of what our betrayer may think of us, then we are tragic victims who may have been damaged beyond repair. But if God's word is true, and it is, then nothing a betrayer can say to us or do to us can change who we really are or alter how God can use us. That's why it's so important for someone who's been betrayed to say this with Paul. Would you read it out loud with me? Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on 
toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm going to stop looking back into the past, and I'm going to take my gaze, and I'm going to look forward at the call that God has for my life. I'm looking forward to the call. Conclusion. No sooner had Judas left the room than Jesus spoke the truth in the face of that hatred. No sooner had his betrayer left the room than he declared what the Bible said about him was his reality. No sooner had doubt been planted than faith uprooted it. He had been struck but not defeated. He refused to be ashamed. He would be glorified by the Father and the Father would be glorified in him. That's how you escape betrayal. Would you stand with me? Blessed be God. Blessed be God. Right now, this message may well have struck something in you. You may have been dealing with a betrayal. You may be one of those. Did you hear what the Lord did? How did he handle the betrayal against him? He confessed immediately what the word said about him. This is how you fight this. And you see the hand of God. It has, you overcome the, this wound by faith. Not by getting even, not by harboring something, not by even positive confession of yourself. You know, like, I can do this, I'm all right. No, you get back to the Word and say, this is what God says. This is what the Word says. This is the truth. And with that comes the Holy Spirit. And He strengthens us. Right now, would you bow your heads one second? Who today says, I have, I got an arrow in my soul. But it's, it's coming out. I, I, the Lord Jesus just showed me how to get this thing out of me. And I'm going to walk free. I am not a betrayed person. I am not, I am not someone uh, who's just been left behind. I'm not ruined goods. Uh, I'm going to have plan A by a different way. God is with me. Who needs to raise your hand and say, that's my truth today. Hold it high. Father God, see our hands. See our hands. We are confessing that that truth for David, that truth for Joseph, and that truth, most of all, for our beloved Lord Jesus. It's our truth. It's our truth. We're who you say we are. The plan for us is what you do. Nobody can take our destiny. Lord, where we have doubted and where we've grown afraid, forgive us. Where we fought fire with fire, where we tried to return what was done to us, to hurt back as badly as we've been hurt, forgive us. Lord Jesus, pull that arrow out. Pull that wound out of our soul. And we go forward now, Lord. We forget what lies behind. And we set our gaze on the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. And we're going to live full out for that which you have purposed for us. Till we see you face to face. Soon and very soon. We love you. We honor you. You are our healer. You are our redeemer. You rescue us out of the pit. We love you beyond words. We confess that in Jesus' name. If you agree with my, my confession, would you say, yes, Lord? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.